Bob and Pam McRae, professors from Moody Bible Institute, during a Q&A session at a recent marriage conference. Visit Marriage in Today's World for resources to go along with this episode. And now your host, Pam and Sean Beadle. So welcome uh, to Marriage in Today's World. And we're joined by uh, Dr. Bob and Dr. Pam McRae today. Um, my husband, Sean, is also hosting with me, so that's fun. Um, and thank you so much for being with us on the conference, and we've enjoyed learning from you. And what we want to do now is just hear from you on how you met. We didn't get to hear any of those details, so give us a little inside scoop on how you met. Do you want my version or Pam's version? Well, I don't know. Should <laughs> take a vote? Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, thank you for thank you so much for having us. We're just so grateful to be with you and happy to do this. Well, how I met <clears throat> my version. So I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, and Bob had graduated from Moody several years before, um, and so Bob came back to work at Moody, and I, um, my sister was a couple years older than I and she was working in one of the offices at Moody, and I would go in to see her all the time. And then I was introduced to Bob. Um, actually, I had seen him the summer before because I was going to summer school and he was going taking a class at summer school, and he and one of his friends um, would hang out in the dining room, and I saw them, and I thought they were like- Handsome. <laughs> Abundantly annoying. <laughs> That's sort of like handsome, close. But when I saw that he worked with my sister, my sister eventually said to me, um, hey, Pam, Bob asked for your number. And I'm like, oh, can you just like give him the wrong number maybe? <laughs> and um, so of course she couldn't do that. And he called and you know, that was 43 years ago, 44, 45. 45 years ago. So that was a long time ago. And um, so one of, one of the things that I, one of the ways that I was approaching dating at that time, if a guy was gutsy enough to ask me, I would at least say yes one time. That's, so Bob asked me and I went out with him and, you know. The rest is history. He wants me to stop talking. <laughs> we can see that bottom line approach and all the details right now. He wants his version. That's what he really wants. So, um, so it was it was fine. It was like one of those dates. It was like that was fine. But then he asked me again, and and we started talking and having great conversations. And we he would take me to church, and then we would have very good theological and grossing conversations about um, what we thought about the Lord, the sermon, his scriptures, and things like that. And that really was intriguing to me when we started dating. Do you want to correct, enlarge? No, I, I would agree 100% uh, with what Pam just said. But before that, this friend of mine that Pam was not overly impressed with, um, I won't use her other name because who knows, she might listen to this podcast. But um, uh, Pam was walking around school with one of her friends and uh, my friend John said, oh, Bob, we should take uh, Pam and 
this other person out on a, on a double date. I said, oh yeah, that sounds great. And again, people just kind of dated more freely back then than they do today. And he says, you pick who you want and I'll ask the other. I said, I'll ask Pam. So that's, that's how that's done. Good thing you picked him. <laughs> I was hoping it was a little more sincere than that, you know? I know. Yes, uh, Were you hoping for more romance? <laughs> yeah, that's Were almost, you? <laughs> it's a little bit like the roll of the dice. I'll take Pam, right. I guess. <laughs> And here we are, 45 years later, doing marriage conferences. Yeah. <laughs> Still rolling the dice. <laughs> okay, one question that we had from the audience, we'll, we'll um, get to this one before we get to more serious. Um, we definitely need to know, Pam, if you ended up staying on the wrong side of the bed in the hotel last night. <laughs> and that was really funny because Bob told me I'm on the wrong side. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, no, that would have never worked. <laughs> No, it's kind of like today when we were teaching, um, I, we usually stand together. So I don't know if you notice, I didn't know whether to stand or sit down or sit down or, I, because we do it one way. And so then when we're doing this another way. Um, no, we have to figure it out, but we do have routines and we do have ways that we are accustomed. So, no. Yeah, that's very good. So it's uh, question number two. Put my mic up. This is a podcast. This is my first time ever being on this podcast, so I'm a little nervous. Um, uh, uh, when it uh, comes uh, to this concept of submission and uh, building uh, each other up, how does that really look like on a day-to-day uh, -day basis? You know, how do you do that uh, uh, practically? So your listening audience will not have had the benefit of hearing what we said Sure, if you want to give a quick summary, that's good too. Okay, mm -hmm. so we, um, you know, obviously a concept when we're talking about Christian marriages, submission um, is a big topic because we want to obey scripture, but we also know that that particular concept is one that has been misused in so many ways that it feels bad for everyone. Mm -hmm. So I have men in the classes that I teach that come to me and come to my office and say, I don't get this. I don't want to do this. You know, what do I have to do? Because this just feels weird. I don't, you know, and women who say, what does that mean? Can I talk about problems or issues or concerns? Or is that in some way taking away from what you know, so it's, it's like it's confusing for everyone. Yes. It can be. And so the concept that we talked about in the marriage sessions a few minutes ago was that there's a deference that we have to one another in marriage that really is informed by the verse in Ephesians 5 um, that's just above wives submit to your husband where it says that we're to submit to one another. Now, I think there is no doubt that it's a particular way in Scripture that God tells wives to submit to husbands. But it says unto the Lord, so that that means that a wife is doing this to herself. It's in the, the, the way it's grammatically structured. She is to take the action herself. It is not something that he ever says, submit to me. It's that she is submitting herself to him as unto the Lord. And so the question, when it talks about, I'm losing the question, what does it look like practically? I think that there is a, I'd like to use the word deference because I think that that means that we are deferring to each other kindly. So 
Um, I don't try to get my own way all the time. I don't try to make Bob do what I want him to do all the time. I don't try to have life oriented around me all the time. And actually, then in Ephesians 5, words, then it says, husbands, sacrifice for for your wife, it means he's actually doing the same thing, but there's a particular way that he sacrifices and I submit. There's a lot of women who don't want their husband to do all that sacrificing or don't want to, you know, kind of submit themselves to be cared for in a particular way that a husband cares for a wife. Rather be independent, do it herself, and, you know, not feel vulnerable in that way. So a wife needs to submit herself to have that kind of love and attention given to her through her husband. And so there's really, then this, the husband needs to be giving everything he has to make her all that she can be. So when you're doing that for each other, you're both lifting each other up. And so in doing so, it feels like you're being honored and respected and um, and cherished in ways that you're valued so much that you're being lifted up. Otherwise, it becomes a situation where very often a wife can be put, feel like she's being put down, like submit to me, submit to me, submit to you, be under me, be under me. And I don't think that that's a state of blessedness for anybody in any relationship to feel like they are under somebody else's will. And, and let me just add like a, how it kind of works out uh, practically. Um, I think, um, quite honestly, I think the whole thing with submission is a way for some insecure men to kind of hide behind that because it's a, it's a way of kind of always being able to get your own way. Um, and uh, quite honestly, I think most decisions in our marriage are decisions that we make mutually, okay, where you know, we sit down and go, okay, what do you think? What, you know, as opposed to me, because I'm the man saying, this is what we're going to do, and Pam saying, yes, sir, okay? Um, some of you who were here last night um, heard me say that I have ADD, all right? Um, if you have ADD, you can only imagine how many times we have driven past a nice, shiny car that I thought would be really important for us to buy, all right? <laughs> and if, if every time I were to say, oh, we should get this, Pam just said, yes, sir, we would have been bankrupt. Let's see, we've been married 43 years, 41 years ago, okay? Um, it, it, it would not have worked well. And so, you know, we, we talk through decisions and we talk through them together. And I am very grateful that God has given me a wife who is intelligent, who has insights that I don't have. And uh, um, I believe she's grateful for what I bring uh, to the table. And it's not like we try to keep score on, well, you know, who won this one or who won that one. It's like, you know, I think, I think this is the better way to go. We have talked that theoretically, if we had to have a decision made by a certain time and we didn't know which way to go and we were at odds that we'd go with uh, what I think we need to do. But we have tried to think of an example where that's happened in 43 years and we can't think of one. Um, we think it happened once or twice, but we don't remember what it actually was. So it's, but we, we kind of work things out together. And when I, I said that thing about secure, um, in, insecure men, we have counseled people. We have known marriages where the husband's idea is because I'm the husband, you don't ever challenge me because that's disrespectful. 
And I'm just so grateful that I have a wife who has challenged some of my ideas because we'd be in big trouble if she did. So. Yeah, thank you. That's really good. Um, so another question that maybe kind of follows that um, is how do you appreciate what God has done in your spouse's life and not cling to their old selves? So maybe um, remembering how they used to be, bringing up some of those past mistakes, um, or however else you would like to interpret that question. So appreciating what God has done in your spouse's life um, and not remembering the old person. You know, the word of God tells us that um, God separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And, and when it says that God um, does not remember our sin anymore, it's not like he's unconscious of what happened, but he doesn't remember that against us. He doesn't hold that against us. Um, and aren't we, aren't we grateful for that? That our past have been forgiven um, we, we no longer have to pay, uh, for those sins. You know, sometimes I ask my uh, students, um, if as Christians, if we do things that are wrong, do you think God has to punish us? And a lot of times we say, well, yeah, of course he does. Now, again, we, we look at the verses in scripture that might seem to imply that, um, in, uh, Hebrews 12 and so forth, a better word for there for that is discipline. Because if you thought, if God had to punish Christians for the sins that we committed, then what Jesus did on the cross was not satisfactory because he took our punishment. So if God had to still punish us. So if our, our spouses have a past that they wish they didn't have, um, we're not really showing God's grace to them if we bring that up. When that's something that's been forgiven, that's something that's been left behind and they're a new creature. And I think maybe sometimes we just need to ask God to help us to celebrate who our spouse has become as opposed to thinking about what our spouse maybe did before Christ or before they uh, came to a strong relationship uh, with Christ. Yeah, and I just to enlarge that a little bit too or give my perspective too, that I think that um, remembering what has been in the past can be useful if you remember it with wisdom and grace and discernment so that you remember and say, remember when we used to do that? We don't do it anymore. That's so cool. You know, so we do that. Um, so, so how we remember it is also important. Maybe there are some things where you remember with grief and sadness and say, Lord, this is still something that is affecting us and hurting us, whatnot. Let's continue to pray for that. So when God would remember things, he would take action. So when I think of this in terms of women who were barren, remember so many women like Hannah was barren. She prays and she vows to the Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And then God remembered her. And so then God took action on her behalf in that regard. So I think the kind of remembering that honors and understands with wisdom what's happening is what we're all going to do. Um, but taking action against it is not allowed. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's a distinction that's helpful for me. 
Um, in the same way, there's probably some fun things that um, we might remember, and maybe something's happened and there's been some accident, there's been some shift in mental um, capacity, stabilities, or whatnot. I remember when you didn't have this woundedness, didn't have this, and I'm sad that that's not the way it is now. You know, life is a journey and it's full of suffering. And so there are times that we remember with sadness and grief um, and hope for the redemption of the Lord in some way. Yeah, that's very nice. So when you come into a marriage, often we're thinking we're going to change my spouse. That's going to work out because I'll change my spouse later. And so how do you how do you go from changing my spouse uh, to appreciating the differences in my spouse? I'll start with that, because when we first got married, I thought that was my job, quite honestly, to change Pam into a New Jersey woman. And, uh, and after about two years, I'm thinking, this isn't working too well. <laughs> and I think God just kind of had to, uh, um, you know, through seminars that we went to, things that we had read, help me understand that um, my job was not to make Pam into someone different. Uh, but to appreciate who she was and use that as a strength. And, uh, um, you know, there are times we irritate each other, that those differences that you kind of go, oh, man, I, seriously, you really don't like football, you know? <laughs> Even after all these years, it's like I've tried so hard to help you learn to appreciate it, and it's not quite there yet. <laughs> we still have time. But... Uh, uh, you know, again, I think a lot depends on what we focus on. And, you know, I can spend all my time focusing on places where we might uh, see things differently or just in my prayer life saying, God, help me to appreciate where Pam's different. Help me to uh, look at the strengths that she has and celebrate those and uh, to thank God for how those strengths can also then be used in shaping me into a, a different person in, in my own growth. So... I can give you an example. When I think when I look back and um, we first got married, I'm not sure that I necessarily thought I want these things to change. I don't know if I just don't remember them or if that was just kind of not aware. That wasn't what, what I was thinking about. Like in two years, I want this to be different. You know, I didn't do that. But the way those things are revealed or whatever would happen, and then I would get irritated about That's when you know you want to change, you really wanted to change things or wanted certain things to change. And we talked about this a little bit with some of you last night, but one of those ways was when we first got married, I had read probably every marriage book I could get my hands on, those kinds of things, you know, because we're going to be prepared and um, we're going to get this right. And so one of the things was um, we were going to have deep time in God's word together every day so that we could be spiritually united in ways that actually I was hoping that he would tell me how to best live my spiritual life. I had just graduated from Bio, from Moody Bible Institute with a, uh, in, in theology, and I was exhausted. Like, theologically, I was sort of exhausted. And I didn't realize it, but I wanted him to, I want, when we got married, I wanted him to like, just do it for me for a while so I can just rest. You know, I wanted him to um, tell me, you know, just help me be the spiritual, I suppose in, in certain 
languages that we often think of. I wanted him to be a spiritual leader so I could relax because I was tired. And I read books that talked about that, and so my expectation was high. And I realized after a while, because that did not work, we don't think alike, we don't study alike, we don't really kind of even engage with the Lord in the same way. So when I wanted to read a book and discuss it theologically, my dear husband, who is funny, and he is like, you know, active, it was counter to my serious kind of somber approach. And so it wasn't... It was not a good mix. <laughs> <laughs> and it made me think that if this doesn't get fixed, our, the spiritual life in our marriage was going to fail and, and we, were, we had the potential of falling apart because it wasn't working spiritually. And so um, it took me a while to realize that my relationship with the Lord is my relationship with the Lord and it's between me, me and him. I'm responsible to learn to grow and that kind of thing, that's up to me. That when I get to heaven, I cannot say to the Lord, it was the husband which thou gavest to me, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been, but I, no, I couldn't do that. I have to get that settled first. And then I had to appreciate the way we do interact spiritually, which is life-giving in our own way. And then as we got further into the marriage and have children, I appreciated that my husband, who is a youth pastor, who was fun and who knew how to engage with children and adolescents in ways that I did not know how to. That was a great benefit to my children. And so some of those things where I appreciated who he was and how he engaged with the Lord was something that I appreciated as time went on. All right, you sort of leaned into this question about expectations. Um, so talk a little bit about coming in with expectations into marriage and how that continues after years of marriage. We still have those um, expectations and specifically the menial task. So how do you manage um, who washes dishes, the expectations of that? Who's going to handle those types of tasks um, in the home? Um, we don't really have a list of, okay, uh, what's Bob's stuff and what uh, is Pam's stuff. Some of it has to do with um, our own interests. Um, this might sound crazy, but when I was like a kid, I always hated uh, yard work and stuff. But when I got into ministry, I began to love it, and I couldn't quite understand why. And then I think I figured out one day that in ministry, you don't see results right away. Mm -hmm. But it's really nice to be able to go outside, mow your lawn, and two hours later have everything trimmed and go, Oh, yeah, it looks good because, you know, working with people, it's not usually a two hour turnaround. Right. Good. And, uh, and, and so I, I enjoy that. Um, uh, in the early years of, uh, of our marriage, um, uh, some of you remember the shag carpeting. We had shag carpeting and we had a old Hoover up orange. Uh, orange. an old uh, Hoover upright that uh, we got for ten dollars at a garage sale. And, um, you know, Pam's biceps were about this big. And to try and vacuum on that shag carpet, she'd need to about have a hundred yards uh, running start you know, <laughs> to, get the, to get the thing to move. And so, you know, I, I started vacuuming. And uh, I don't know, we, we'd not, I'd probably vacuum 85% of the time. Um, when I was at Moody for 25 years, they give you this little book of where you get to choose, like, 
you know, your gift for your long-term service. 25 years, I chose a vacuum, right? Because <laughs> it's like, and I got this cool little vacuum and it does everything really, yeah. Uh, you know, I hate washing dishes, but um, I'd much rather, uh, no, I hate drying dishes. I hate drying dishes because I never know where to put them, um, but I, I wash uh, a lot, but not always. <laughs> so, you know, Pam, I think twice she's mowed the lawn uh, when I've been out on a trip or something. And Our next door okay. neighbor I'm took cool. a picture of me the <laughs> <Yeah>. one time. <laughs> it's like, we gotta catch this. The Southern gal is mowing the lawn. <laughs> anyway, so we just kind of, yeah. we, we fell in a lot to the um, stereotypes that were common when we got married in ways that our parents did it. Now, interestingly, I think it was common that men took care of finances back then, but my mother took care of the finances in her home, thank God that she did, because she knew what to do with money, and my dad did not. And they, you know, so they were kind of um, counter to the norm, which I think was helpful for us, and we just fell into these patterns. Um, but they worked for us. There wasn't um, resistance. And so I think that what we have noticed, because we have two adult daughters, one has been married 10 years, the other has been married 15 years, and we have watched them in their marriages, which I think is different in the start up now than has been when we, you know, that we got married 43 years ago. I mean, that's just a different time, a different era. But what I have noticed is that those categories have been broken down and people do what they can do and work it out. And so um, I think that that's more a cultural norm now, which I like a lot. I think it's more true to the concept of do what you're gifted in, just like in our spiritual gifts, you do the spiritual gifts, do what you have the, um, the aptitude to do, and then the things that nobody likes to do, work it out in a way that you are generous with each other in doing some of the tasks that you know others don't want to do. So. Yeah, so that's interesting because I don't mind loading the dishwasher. I just can't ever seem to do it correctly. Um, so, that is so, not true. So I'll just, just throw them in there because I know it's going to be fixed he later. He loves so. paper plates, actually. Because <laughs> it's easy. It's easy. Just throw them yeah. away. Okay, so, so there's a lot of uh, couples in here that are newlyweds. So I think uh, romance comes a little bit easier. Um, and then as you get older, as you start having kids and everything gets really, really busy, how, uh, how do you uh, keep it alive? Uh. You know, I remember um, there was this this um, adage when we first got married that I heard several times that um, year seven is a hard year. You've heard that, and I don't know why, but that's what we hear, so we believe it. Um, or at least I did. And it got to about year seven and we had children and Bob was busy in ministry. And I was, we were, I stayed at home, which, um, you know, had its own kinds of challenges and whatnot. And I remember about year seven being worried about that and thinking, oh, our marriage does not have romance. 
Um, and I remember us struggling with that and thinking it through. And not that I had a great concept of what I meant, but I figured he should know what it means. <laughs> but whatever it was, it wasn't happening the way I thought it should be, right? It's so, those books. <laughs> it's always, don't read those books. I, I always tell people, read one, read a really good one, and then like specifics if you need the books along the way. But, um, so I remember talking about that, and I think that one of the um, realizations that I have is that this idea of romantic um, relationships and romance and this feeling that's an emotional experience that we really have a lot of when we're falling in love, um, that's wonderful, but it's not necessarily a normative state of a relationship after a while. In fact, there are studies that say when you fall in love, you have all kinds of endorphins and chemical reactions that you have this in love high that usually drops off when you get married after about six months, that it's like it can be statistically analyzed and proven that those feelings drop off and people get real worried. But it's not to be concerned about. It's a normal experience because that in love state is influenced by so many other emotional kinds of reactions. And then now you're living a life where the love is the staying in love kind of marriage. So you can have moments and peaks of having those emotional um, highs and you have to figure out what that might be from. And so when you understand and learn that, um, you try to do those things so you have those moments, but you can't expect it to be a normative way of experience 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. So when you understand that as love gets older and deeper, it there's a trade-off that there's a settled knowingness that is also delightful and a sense of well-being that doesn't depend on those emotions mm -hmm. in the same way. So uh, appreciate it in this in the way that it comes. We, I'll just say this real quick. In, in class at the beginning of the semester, we were talking about something and Bob said to the class, to our marriage and family class, um, I used to give Pam flowers, but then she told me that doesn't matter to her anymore. So, you know, I don't give her flowers anymore. There's a girl like in the class who gasped and looked at me as if I was like, what's wrong with you, you know? And I'm thinking, you know what? Find out what speaks to you. Flowers don't necessarily speak to me. It's not that it's not nice to get. It's just that when I get flowers, I usually think I'm going to kill them. And you know what? It feels like a burden sometimes, <laughs> right? And especially don't give me a plant. And so, <laughs> But Bob was doing this out of the best and kindest gestures, but to tell him, that's great, but you don't have to feel like you need to do that because it's, you know, buy me a latte, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so figure out what it is. Did you want to add anything to that, Bob? Anything you don't want her to buy for you? <laughs> yeah. No, she can get anything she wants from me. Yeah, so, no. 
No, nothing to add there. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so you spoke about communication. You spoke about conflict. You also um, talked about forgiveness in our um, session earlier today, specifically the five love language, the five languages of apology. Um, on the make restitution, the question is, how does this work? with the Christian practice that forgiveness is complete and there is no work involved. Can you repeat that last part of that? Yep, I can even let you see it. Um, how, how does this work with the Christian practice that forgiveness is complete in Christ and there is no work involved? You know, um, I guess when I think of the restitution, there's, there's some things that you can't really... Um, always make restitution for some things get broken and it's not like you can unbreak them. But um, you take this out of the concept of a marriage. If, um, if I borrow one of my neighbor's tools, this power tool, and I, you know, I somehow accidentally abuse it and break it, I can go up to him and say, I am so sorry that I broke your tool, but I would feel obligated to replace it. You know, go buy a new one, not just say, hey, I'm sorry, here's your broken tool back. And uh, so that's what I think of when I think of restitution, you know. And um, uh, again, it doesn't always um, have uh, have the same uh, punch. I, I, I do a, uh, I teach a class where students are learning how to teach. And one of their uh, things is they have to turn in a lesson plan with, uh, with their, aims, which is like their, their teaching aims and, and so forth. And every semester I have students who forget to write out their lesson aims and, and such, or do some of the prep work before their lesson plan that they turn in. And every student who forgets says, oh, I'm sorry, can I, can I turn it in late? And I said, no, I said, you know, I've been at this for a while. And I've, I've learned that preparing for a talk usually works better before you give it than after. It's, you know, one of those things I've just kind of picked up over the years. And, um, and, and I say it's, it's kind of like taking a girl to the prom. And you don't have a corsage. And you show up and you realize everyone else does. And so you give her one the next day. I said, it's kind of lost its punch, right? Because it's too late. But you know what, um, guys, if you forget an anniversary, if you forget a birthday, you can say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. But it doesn't mean you're off the hook for a gift, right? <laughs> I mean, it might, uh, and I shouldn't say it that way, off the hook. It just might be a really nice, sensitive thing. It's not, a, not as wonderful, but you give something late and said, I am so sorry. I'm gonna make sure I don't forget next year, but you know, here, I, I want to do this to try and make it better. Yeah, I think sort of the part of the implication I hear in that is also forgiveness should be complete so that let's move on, let's forget it. There's nothing else left. <clears throat> and I would say an action that often happens in marriages is that some offense takes place and then there's a conversation, you hurt my feelings. And sometimes the person can, who offended can very quickly say, oh, I'm so sorry, you're right, I'm so sorry. 
with the implication that I've just said, I'm sorry, you're obligated to forgive me. That means we don't have to talk about it. That means that we don't have to work it through. So a quick apology often is a mechanism of control to try to shut down and control things so nothing else comes of what happens. And it releases somebody. It, it, the implication is, if you say I'm forgiven, therefore I'm released from anything else to do with this. And if you bring it up again, if you think that I need to make it right, or you think that I need to feel bad about it, if you think that I need to take care of the hurt that you've experienced, I don't need to do any of that because you said I was forgiven, so it's over. So that's what I think also is implied in that question. So just because you have forgiven or been forgiven doesn't mean that there's still not hard work to take care of what just happened. Because usually there's um, some kind of offense, there's some kind of pain, hurt, some kind of real thing that happened. And if one of you cannot talk about when you did this, this is how I felt, this is what happens to me when I feel that way, this is how long it takes me to get over it, you don't know what fears that brings up, you don't know all those things. If a forgiveness says, you can't tell me that because, and by the way, that hurts my feelings and I feel bad when you tell me that. If there's an implication that those that process doesn't need to happen because the forgiveness has happened, then that's not, I don't think, a true forgiveness. That's power and control and fear over ongoing difficulty. And if I can add this to that as well, sometimes we um, something can happen that breaks trust in a relationship. And the one party can ask the other for forgiveness. And with that kind of have this expectation that because I've asked for forgiveness, trust is immediately uh, restored. People can be forgiven, but trust is one of those things that needs to be rebuilt over time. Mm -hmm. um, I think of an example if there has been infidelity in a relationship. And the person, we'll just use this as an example, say it's the man who was unfaithful um, and he's sorrowful, he um, repents, they're, they're getting outside help um, and the wife has forgiven him, but he tells the wife, um, uh, just so you know, I, I need to work late at the office tomorrow night. She can, uh, he cannot expect her to feel secure in that mm -hmm. if that's what she was being told when the affair was happening. And so for her to say, okay, but just so you know, I'm gonna be calling the office tonight and make sure you're there. You know, if he says, what, you don't trust me? Right now, we're building the trust back, okay? Now, if 25 years later, that's still happening, that might be another issue. But when you can consistently be saying the truth, okay, and the spouse checks to make sure, okay, then the trust can be rebuilt. And sometimes people get that mixed up. They think, well, I asked for forgiveness, you forgave me, so you should be able to trust me right now. Mm. I wanna trust you, but it's gonna take some time to rebuild that because I've been so betrayed by how you broke the trust. Yeah, that's very good. So 
uh, both of you uh, teach together, so you work together. So how do you balance work, uh, ministry, uh, family, and each other? So how do you work that balance out in your marriage? We don't do the best job of that. <laughs> but we kind of do what we're comfortable with. Like we, um, It's not unusual for us to be in our offices, you know, a lot. But we would go home and maybe do school. school. School's teaching is odd. You know, it's like during the semester, we call it, it's like a big old sprint, you know. And But we know that that's not going to last very long and then we have these breaks where we can have more time so during the semester if we have a lot of work hours involved in our week we understand each other's life and so I think that's a great thing that we understand each other's life and so that's great so we all both also have a limit to how long um we can go without seeing our grandchildren uh, and our children. And <laughs> so they live with them. That's right. They come with them. So you know, we and our children have a limit to how long they can go without seeing us. And so we want to honor that too. You know, we're thankful that every now and again they go. We haven't seen you, or the kids need to see you. And so we try to um, honor that. And, you know, then because we work together and have more time together than most couples do, there is, you know, th there's always time where we say, that's great, but you know what, we need to go and do something. And so we'll make sure that we still have those life moments outside of, you know, work that we, we kind of call those in on occasion. So, and we plan ahead. So, uh, I think last year we decided that our, you know, for Christmas gift we would give each other seasons tickets to the theater, not to any game. Sorry. Um, so, <laughs> you know, and so that makes us have this regular. So we try to figure out what ways can we give ourselves regular times that we can expect to do things together. That's good. Thank you. All right. So. Um, Probably our last question here. Um, holidays are coming. Um, if we're spending time with extended family who may or may not share our values, um, how can we remain united when these interactions can be frustrating? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, our experience, uh, we both came from Christian homes. And so in terms of faith, we um, had some very strong commonalities, but what is really interesting is uh, in recent years, um, families have kind of stated their paths a little bit more differently when it comes to political issues um, and so forth. And uh, I think there's sometimes uh, wisdom in knowing what subjects not to bring up at the Thanksgiving table and what to just kind of try and pass over. Or if someone, you should see how people are kind of looking at each other right here. Like, yeah, Thanksgiving, two weeks from yesterday. Yeah. And you're already gearing up. And, uh, um, and um, you know, or someone will kind of plant the question that could have, could kind of blow up the whole table conversation. I think sometimes it's, disciplining yourself to not take the bait 
um, and uh, or disciplining yourself to graciously change the subject, um, knowing when to maybe leave the family room when certain conversations happen and go and see if you can wash the dishes or something. Um, and you know, it, it, it's tough. And I, I think sometimes too is uh, understanding uh, the limits in terms of how long you can stay someplace that, you know, maybe some of you have in-laws and so forth that you're gonna visit and maybe staying for two days is a lot better than staying for a week uh, because you know, um, as the time goes on, people start letting the guard down a little bit, and uh, and it, and it's hard. I, I don't want to make it sound like it's a real easy, simple answer, but um, we have heard, and I'm sure many of you have heard, and maybe some of you have experienced this. Um, well, let me just back up a sec. When the pandemic thing happened, uh, we have two daughters that we love tremendously. Um, uh, one's married to a physician, uh, one's married to a, um, a, a lawyer, and they're all involved in different kinds of work. And the three of us, the three like different families, kind of had three different perspectives on a lot of things, right? And we were sitting around the table uh, one time, and I said, um, or maybe we were Zooming this at the, at the time, I said, you know what, guys? If at the end of this, however this all pans out, if we can respect each other and love each other, I will be a happy camper. And about a month or two ago, we're sitting around the table, all of us and stuff, I said, you know what guys, I think we did it. <laughs> we love each other, we respect each other, and we didn't you know, try to convince each other of how to, how to, how to view this. But um, you know, you've heard stories, and maybe some of you experienced this, where you know, this whole pandemic thing is, or political things, have torn families apart, you know? And it's like, oh, it's, it's tragic. And I, I guess my only advice is sometimes it's better even if you think your opinion is right to sit on it, you know? It doesn't, just because something's true doesn't mean it has to be said out loud, so, yeah. Yeah, I think if we go into family situations where we know there's differences, if we feel like this is a great opportunity because they need to know this, and they need to, you know, think my way. I would say, just please convince yourself that no, that if they need to know it, ask the spirit to tell them, and just, <laughs> it doesn't have to be you. Right? I mean, really, if it's that important. So, um, and the other thing I would say that I have watched this, um, in our own family and not from us, but I think I've learned from, um, from like the younger generation, I've watched this, that sometimes if they're getting, if we're getting close to a topic that there might be disagreement and it could be hard for somebody in there, like not even that it would be hard for them but you know that there is a person at the table that this might be a difficult conversation, a difficult opinion, or it might lead you down a path where there would be disagreement that would be hard for everybody to have to watch, you know? If that's going in that direction, it is a wonderful thing to change the subject and to plan ahead 
with some pieces of information, some things you think are non-incendinary, and just change the subject. All of a sudden, bring up something that twitch, twists things a little bit to move in a different direction. I think that's a beautiful thing. That's a kind thing that is a gracious thing that is loving to people who may not be able to contain themselves. You don't want to have division where it's going to be a memory and it's going to be a long-standing thing. Talk about something else. Talk about something that is really low-level engagement. And you might even want to plan ahead what some of those are so you have in your back pocket. You know, number five on my list was this, you know, and just make it issues where it's not going to be controversial. Any kind of family dinner never usually brings out a result where people change their minds in significant ways that matter to the world. Sure. Right? I'm just saying. So there's one more uh, uh, question here that might impact about 1% of the people uh, in this room. But how does uh, uh, social media and uh, cell phones impact uh, our marriages today? My goodness, that is huge. And there are so uh, many different books being written on that right now. Um, I mentioned briefly in the, um, in the session of like with our students, how anxiety is much, much higher than it ever used to be. And there's all sorts of studies that are uh, coming out saying that they think a lot of this has to do with, um, uh, usage of their smartphones and so forth, you know, um, don't need to get into all the nitty gritty of it, but every time students get a text message or whatever, they get a little shot of adrenaline and, you know, there's some real science behind the whole idea that people are addicted to their devices. And uh, one of the things that we uh, try to do, and uh, one of the things I respect that we do when our, our, our kids are with us and our grandkids is uh, we leave the phones in the pockets, we, um, we, um, don't have them out at the table. We have uh, we use that time for conversation. I think when families are traveling in the cars, it's a great time to put those things away and have conversation. Yeah, there might be phone call or something you need to to take. Uh, we um, uh, unless we go to bed really early, um, we try not to uh, take our phones to bed with us and uh, leave them. Um, you know, getting charged so that we can have conversation. And again, if this is something that's uh, not like this is something that we've had total victory in, but we 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 understand the trap that it can be. And uh, uh, we find ourselves continually having to have conversation. OK, like, OK, how do how do we do this better? All right. Um, and uh, as opposed to go, OK, we we got this licked, you know, but how do we do this better? Because um, with your phone, everything seems like it's becoming urgent, you know? And it's like, it's, this, this text was not urgent. Um, and uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I think that during the pandemic, I saw that I got more addicted to my phone because I, that's the way, I, you know, we stayed in touch more. And then it was hard to wean off of that. So I think it's just discipline, make some hard choices. And, you know, we've been even talking lately about it. Um, I have a friend who puts, maybe a lot of you do this, put timers on your phone. You can only be on your phone and it cuts off or whatever. I, I'm liking that. I think that that's our next move to just have it so that, because we all need to figure out what's the next thing that can help us 
to, so when it gets to be a problem, then take action. But I think it's, I mean, I, I know that question came up because we all agree it's so destructive. Um, but we feel almost compelled by the world we live in to stay in touch that way. So, yeah. We usually end our podcast with a question that says, what's one thing you personally do to keep the spark alive in your marriage? <laughs> you caught me off guard with that. And the ADD was just I didn't going know that crazy. was possible. <laughs> I could feel the ADD going. I'll look it up on social media. Yeah. Mm -hmm. no, there, you know, there's times where we'll be sitting in arenas or whatever, someplace, and something will happen. And Pam knows me so well, I don't even have to say anything. She'll just look at me and say, don't say it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> she, anyway, why don't you start off, honey? <laughs> For us, what really draws us together is time spent in ways that we are able to just focus on each other. We love to take walks. We like to, we live close to water. We like to go to the beach. We like to go on trips. We like to drive together. It's the times that we have together by ourselves. And in, in many ways, it doesn't really matter what we're doing but the times that gives us the opportunity for long conversations, that's really what we just, I think we just love and feel really a sense of well-being when we're doing that. Yeah, and Pam's uh, primary love language is, uh, is gifts, and, uh, and it doesn't need to be something expensive. Uh, I've learned it's not flowers, but um, <laughs> no, and I think of all that money. <laughs> But seriously, if, if, um, if I can pick up something that Pam uh, sees that there was just thoughtfulness behind it and that, um, uh, you know, if, I, if I'm away speaking or something like that, it's like, honey, I thought of you and this, um, I wanted you to have this. It doesn't have to be something expensive. That is something I know that really speaks to Pam. Well, thank you. Um, it's been a delight. I love, um, I think what I'm taking away from this is what you said, Bob, is how can we do this better? Um, I think that's a great question for us to just reflect on uh, what we learned today um, and, and in this session as well. So thank you for that. We appreciate your time. You've been a delight. Um, so thank you to all of you for joining us. And with that, um, we will close it out. studio audience at Calvary Church in Muscatine, Iowa. For more resources on this and other episodes, visit us at marriageintodaysworld.com. Marriage in Today's World podcast is a ministry of United Marriage Encounter. Strengthen your marriage today at unitedmarriage.com.